<laughs> Zone 3 Podcast. I'm Robert. Yes, and I'm Reggie. And we are joined by Doctor Who. Thank you, Doctor Who, for yes. joining us. So this one quick awesome. question before we get going. Doctor Who, correct? Like H-U, Doctor Who? Yeah. Nice. Yep. Nice. Yep. All right. I get a lot of... Uh, <laughs> You know, it's almost too easy. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> That's good. I got to yeah, use that one. <laughs> yep, yep, exactly. Yep, no, you said it perfectly. Uh, perfect. Perfect. Uh, well, Dr. Who is a radiologist, a neuroradiologist, correct? And uh, he's yep. here to discuss neuroimaging, perfusion studies of the brain. Um, and so if you would just kind of describe your background and talk yeah, about your kids, if you like. Tell us a little bit yeah, about yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh grew up in Texas, um, in Dallas, and pretty much... Uh, did high school there, uh, med school and residency. Um, did a little bit of uh, time up in D.C. for college. Oh, nice. Um, and then came out here for fellowship uh, at Barrow Neurological Institute um, in 06. And then uh, basically uh, after two years of fellowship there, joined Mayo nice. um, as staff there. So, yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Yeah. So I got a question. How long have you been working on, like, perfusion? Was that something you started like in your fellowship or yeah it's nuts it's um it's been since basically 06 so oh, wow. i had um you know an interest in perfusion uh in residency back in texas but really didn't start getting into it very much uh until i moved out here uh for fellowship um it's actually a, a tool that um was still in sort of the kind of middle phases um, back in 06 when I started. Um, and, uh, you know, it's funny because in fellowship, they actually weren't doing perfusion as a routine clinical tool. Um, and, but they saw a ton of brain tumors. Um, they saw a ton of, uh, brain tumor cases where, um, you have these diagnostic dilemmas of, um, trying to differentiate, uh, tumor occurrence from post-treatment effect. And they both, look the same on conventional MR. And, uh, and I was just thinking as a fellow, I'm like, you know, why don't we use perfusion to help differentiate that? Um, and so basically I I got the whole project, uh, started as a fellow. Um, one of the, the, uh, tough parts about correlating imaging with, um, with, you know, brain tumors is that, um, there's a lot of heterogeneity in the, in the, uh, treatment bed. Right. So it's hard to uh, correlate the imaging uh, with pathology if it's not in a spatially localized manner. Right. Um, and so I uh, basically, you know, me and uh, the group of researchers and in, in, uh, clinical research that, that we we're working with um, started this image guided biopsy uh, right. uh, protocol. So basically I would be up in the OR um, getting uh, tissue specimens with the neurosurgeons, uh, taking screen captures right. of uh, you know all the biopsy locations, and actually I can probably um, oh, yeah. show kind of a uh, get right into it. Oh, yeah. first before you know, one question oh, yeah, I do sure. have is like, um, so I think maybe we should kind of decipher when a perfusion study would be in the patient's best interest, and sure. when you wouldn't, oh, yeah, and right. what sort of pathologies would clinical indications would cause you to order a perfusion study on a patient. Right. Yeah. So, um, perfusion, uh, basically, so, you know, we all know that MR has been around for, you right. know, 40 plus years. Right? right. Um, and it's been basically kind of a, um, you know, a game changer in terms of medical imaging and uh, right. especially in neuro-oncology. Um, and, uh, you know, they won the Nobel Prize for it and everything, and it's really defined the clinical standard. 
um, for the past 40 years. Um, I feel like it's basically this uh, highly finely tuned race car, you know, this Formula One race car (laughs) that basically we're still driving at 35 in the school zone or in the uh, residential area. There's a lot of stuff that we haven't yet taken advantage of. Um, And one of the techniques that I think is soon becoming indispensable is perfusion imaging. Um, So with routine imaging, uh, we basically use T1 post-GAD and and T2, right? Mm -hmm. It's kind of the standard ones. T1 post-GAD basically tells us about blood-brain barrier disruption and leakage. Right. Um, and that has become synonymous with uh, tumor recurrence as well on surveillance imaging. The problem is, is that post-treatment effect or treatment-related uh, uh, sort of reactive change looks exactly like tumor recurrence on, on post-GAD T1. They're right. all enhancing lesions and they have all this edema. And so the nice thing is, is that Perfusion actually tells you not about vessel leakage, but it actually tells you about vessel growth. So it's not the leakiness of the vessels, but actually the size. Right. And oh, so, because that would look the same on the conventional MR, right? Like the normal tissue around the tumor that might be affected by the pathology, right? The lesion might actually still be, I guess, uh, you know, uh, misdiagnosed if you don't do a perfusion because they might miss it in surgery because it just looks like normal tissue. And on the actual conventional MR, right? Yeah, yeah. But even even within, so let's say a patient comes in and they've gotten radiation and temozolomide right. um, and they're getting routine follow-up. Mm-hmm. If they develop an enhancing lesion, um, that could represent three things. It could represent uh-huh. tumor. Uh-huh. It could represent radiation change, which is a good response, or it could represent an admixture of both. So there, there's oftentimes an intermixed, it's like a right. mixed lesion, right? That'd be tough, yeah. So basically all of that looks the same. Right. And so without a technique like perfusion, us as radiologists, we're basically saying, okay, well, we see this enhancing lesion, it's growing bigger. I don't know <laughs> if it's tumor, I don't know if it's post-treatment effect, let's right. continue to watch, right. right? And so we're sort of, in many ways, sort of kicking the can down the road, right. waiting for the patient to to really progress on a clinical level. Um, and so for us on imaging, there's really relatively less value add um, that, that we're able to provide um, okay. without other techniques like perfusion. Right. And so perfusion really provides um, more uh, specificity. Oh, nice. Yeah. You can get down and say, hey, this is actually recurrent uh, tumor, right? Exactly. Or it's post-treatment effect or it's a mixture of both. Right. Um, and uh, it's it's really um, become, you know, like I said, a, an important uh, sort of adjunct tool. Um, it's been considered for many years to be boutique, mm-hmm. um, you know, only for academic centers. But I, I'm becoming more and more surprised every day of the the institutions, both in the community and in academics that are starting to adopt it and really embrace it. Um, Why do you think that is? Is it, is it because the actual post-processing is getting easier and more reproducible? Because I know that the post-processing has come a long way since you started, right? It has. It has. I, th- I think a, a lot of it has to do with understanding what the perfusion actually tells you. Oh, what it so um, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, perfusion basically gives you a uh, a continuous value from like zero to up to 10, for instance, right? right? And so it's hard um, for us to understand 
um, without, again, some type of validation against, you know, histology. So um, uh, what does tumor represent, like in terms of an RCBV value, and what does post-treatment effect look like? And so without us defining those guidelines of thresholds of, okay, if it's if the RCBV relative cerebral blood volume mm-hmm. is above a certain level, then that represents tumor. If it's below that, then it represents post-treatment effect. And if it's in this gray zone, then you know we're we're not entirely sure. So right. a lot of our work has really been to to uh, basically use those image localized biopsies to try to to find that uh, to make that one-to-one correlation um, to to basically provide like kind of a a translation of right. what the perfusion means. Nice. So since then, I think, um, you know, I, th- I think once there becomes a lot more clarity of what that actually means, then people can start to understand it. They're going to want can it, right? embrace it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, in, in the medical field or um, in many ways, and I'm not saying this is a bad thing, right. um, very conservative in terms of, um, defining standard practice, uh, oh, right. you know, um, making sure that we're validating things that we're going through, and right. and making sure that that recommendations are safe and they're they're appropriate and they're helpful before right. adopting it. And so I think we're still collecting uh, that in data, that phase. Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, nice, nice. Now I know that you can have a tumor perfusion and you can have a stroke perfusion. And I guess the values that you guys look at when you're diagnosing those two different types of perfusion is a little bit different, right? Yeah, it, it's different. Um, so in the setting of um, stroke perfusion, uh, a lot of times we actually rely on CT uh, to do that um, right. because, you know, as you guys know, CT, you can get a patient in and out. Time is of the essence in stroke. I mean, right. they basically say, you know, time is brain. Um, and, uh, you don't need to screen, um, if the patient's moving, uh, you know, CT is just much easier in, right. in the stroke, uh, perspective. Um, and really what you're looking for in stroke is, is blood flow. Um, you're looking for mean transit time. You're looking for like how quickly, um, the contrast moves through, through the right. tissue. And, um, and with, with tumor perfusion, um, you're looking more again at, at kind of the total volume of contrast um, that's moving through. Oh, like the signal amplitude, if how that increases, right? Exactly. I see. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and or decreases. It, yeah. Yeah. Right. Actually, <laughs> decreases. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but uh, in in I think the the reason why we use MR in the setting of tumors is that MR b- besides the perfusion, we get a ton better, uh, you know, soft tissue detail. Right. There are all these other uh, pull sequences that we can use. It's just right. a much better test. Way better spatially, right? Yeah, spatially. And, um, and you know, like MR is just awesome. <laughs> right. So, we'll yeah. be fans of MRI, <laughs> yeah. too. I mean, that's actually a big reason why I went into neuro in the first place is because, oh, nice. uh, yeah, all MRI. the MR tools are being uh, tested and developed in neuro. So, oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so it's a cool. Nice. So um, you were going to show us a case about uh, the biopsy? Yeah, actually, so I can go through and um, yeah. I don't know if this is uh, working on the, my mouse is working or not. Okay. Uh, and I'm, this mouse moves like a tortoise. So sorry about that. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I haven't figured it out yet. Yeah. So this is actually a, a slide basically sh- just showing that uh, 
DSC perfusion, it's not like a static image where we put a patient in the scanner for, you know, five minutes oh. and get one volume acquisition. This right. is basically um, getting a movie clip at a time resolution of one to two seconds, um, getting an entire volume acquisition and just following the contrast bolus, um, uh, basically getting the signal values uh, right now uh, before the contrast hits and then as the contrast uh, transits through the brain and then afterwards. And so uh -huh. um, because it's a T2 star gradient echo based right. uh, uh, EPI, um, you're basically going to see a signal drop over time. And you can and really see that susceptibility effect right there. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And, and that susceptibility effect is then um, uh, translated into a relaxivity over time or changing relaxivity, oh. delta R2 star. And then that is basically integrated under the curve to get uh, RCBV or relative cerebral blood volume. Oh, I see. Yeah, so if you go to the next slide, um, basically it's, yeah, sorry, you have to click again. Um, yeah, maybe uh, we can, well, we can just see the, the GAD go through um, the blood vessels. And if you just like click again, I think there's like a number of, uh, you can just kind of roll through it. Um, and it basically causes a, um, you know, a, a drop oh, in signal. Right. Um, so here, this is a slide that I actually wanted to show. So um, this is an example of two different lesions on T2 imaging. So we have the T2 flares and the T2s on the left, right. and then the perfusion values on the right. And so without the perfusion, um, if you're just looking at the T2, it's relatively nonspecific. They're both non-enhancing. Um, and then if, if, if you could click next, you can see that the lesion that shows low relative cerebral blood volume um, on the map is basically a non-tumoral process, whereas uh, the lesion on the right is actually tumor. It's an anaplastic oligodendroglioma that has a lot of... Um, <laughs> well, I do try to pronounce that. Yeah. I'm not, you said that. Say like, it, Reggie, well, try it. <laughs> I can't follow him. I, I, just... I actually, we call it an ODG, but... Oh, uh, I like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, oligodendroglioma. Yeah, exactly. It's ODG. <laughs> uh, and, and so uh, you, we, you can see that the, the relative cerebral blood volume maps actually provide a lot more specificity um, in terms of differentiating tumor from, from non-tumoral processes. Uh -huh. And then if you go to the next slide, you can see that here we, we have two different lesions that are, show this nodular enhancing pattern, right? And we can see that the um, perfusion map on the left um, is actually uh, showing low RCBV, and that's a, a case of Erdheim-Chester, which is an inflammatory non-tumoral process, whereas the case on the right has all of that uh, elevated relative uh, cerebral blood volume that's indicative of, a, a, in this case, a high-grade glioma biopsy wow. proven as a GBM. So again, the, it's just showing that the presence or absence of an enhancement and the presence or absence of T2 signal um, it's great. I mean, it's basically guided us, um, you know, yeah. for the last 40 years. And I'm not saying that we're going to get rid of that, right. but um, to add more specificity and more diagnostic accuracy with techniques like perfusion is kind of where we're headed. Right. Because that's just going to help you plan for that treatment and get things moving so much faster. Right. Because exactly. you're going to treat all these a little bit differently on how oh, you kind of totally. attack them, right? Totally. I mean, the, the cases on the right, the tumors actually, you want to go in and you want to biopsy and 
um, and potentially resect, right. whereas the cases on on the left, the non-tumoral processes, they're going to be treated either conservatively or with medical management. And you certainly don't want to take out, right. you know, the temporal lobe <laughs> <laughs> based on that, you know. Right. Um, so yeah, the the uh, the the surgical treatment and the medical treatment is very different. Now, can can perfusion be used for early detection too? Uh, so it, it's, it can in certain cases where let's say you have a non-enhancing low grade tumor right. and, um, it, it's showing low RCBV and you're, you're thinking you're following this over many years and you're saying, you know, this is, um, uh, pretty stable. Um, we're, we're going to continue to watch if you see the RCBV actually increase or bump up over time, right. even before the enhancement. They've, studies have shown that that actually is predictive of malignant progression, oh, um, even before the enhancement nice. happens. So um, basically, it's an indication that, um, you know, uh, you can you can provide more aggressive treatment like uh, chemo radiation or maybe right. go in and, and surgically resect even before the enhancement occurs. Right. And when you say non-enhancing lesions, too, it's funny because I feel like we do a lot of these at work. Uh, I feel like almost Almost every time, whenever uh, we're doing kind of like a seizure case, I feel like those lesions, when people have epilepsy, never enhances just about, right? Is there right. a certain type of tumor that is in that temporal lobe like that, that you can see on the perfusion that you just cannot see on the regular tissue? Yeah, yeah. So a lot of those, assuming, so that temporal lobe uh, case on the top left is actually right. um, a case where the, I think the patient was coming with seizures. And, um, you know, obviously that, that ends up not being tumor, but W right. We had a strong suspicion of low-grade glioma even before that. Wow. Um, and a lot of times, as you said, in, in the seizure protocols, low-grade gliomas in the temporal lobes are a, a big cause of, of seizures. Um, and a lot of times those don't enhance. Um, right. And, uh, you know, again, perfusion, um, we would expect, depending on, on if it's low-grade, we would actually expect to see low RCBV. But if there is malignant progression, um, we can see uh, elevated RCBV. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome. Would you say that GBMs are probably the most common study that you see, or purpose, or, uh, or yeah, just pathology? I guess. Yeah, you know. Um, so, you know, brain tumors in general, primary brain tumors, um, those that develop uh, from the brain and, and not ones that metastasize, they're considered relatively. Un, relatively rare tumors, fortunately. Um, but we do see quite a bit, obviously, um, at our practice, uh, you know, tertiary care center, a lot of referrals and all that. We do see a lot of glioma cases. Um, out of gliomas, unfortunately, GBMs um, are not only the most aggressive, but that they're, they're the most common. Um, they account for probably roughly 50% of all, you know, primary brain tumors and then grade threes, anaplastics are also pretty aggressive and they account for another probably 20, 25% of cases. So it's, it's really, it's not great, right. you know, in terms of, uh, yeah, that distribution. But sure. again, I mean, that's why I think we're all, you know, motivated in, in clinical research and, and trying to kind of improve the standard, push the, you know, elevate the quality of, uh, of care for these patients. No, for sure. I know, uh, one thing that I've seen for sure, no matter where I've done perfusion is the docs always like, don't touch my parameters. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What are the parameters that are most important to you on those type of, you know, DC sequences like that? Right, right, right. So, um, it's, uh, 
it, it, it's interesting. And I, I guess we can probably go through, I don't know if we're able to advance the slide. Um, uh, we can just kind of blow through this one. Uh, yeah, right there. So, so basically, and actually go back um, to the very first visual and yeah, click one, uh, one next. Yep. Perfect. So um, in the setting of also, uh, well, as, as you know, like DSC is basically a, a T2 star weighted sequence. And right. so it relies on the GAD actually um, staying within the blood vessel and being compartmentalized. And then it causes this kind of heterogeneity within the tissue and that causes the signal drop. Right. 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 So um, in the setting of no leakage, it works great. And it almost, um, in many ways, doesn't necessarily matter what your pulse sequence parameters are, as long as you're getting like a TR of like a 1.5 okay. um, and all that. Nice. Um, now, with uh, in the setting of blood-brain barrier leakage, you actually get, uh, and you can advance the slide uh, one, you get what's called a T1 leakage effect. So you get the GAD that's actually um, leaking out of the, the blood vessels. So it has two negative things. One is it's no longer compartmentalized within the vessels and you're getting uh, mm -hmm. a spread. And then two, you get the, um, the GAD actually causing a T1 effect. Because as you know, like with all right. pulse sequences, it's very hard to get a pure T2 star right. or a pure T1. So you get these competing effects. And what that means is that instead of seeing a signal drop over time, um, you're actually getting a, a less of a drop. Oh, um, and, and so that causes an underestimation of RCBV. Um, the, the ways around it are to use uh, what's called a preload dose. So we'll give a, ga uh, a GAD bolus and then wait six minutes and then get the, the DSC um, technique. And, uh, if you, if you go, if you advance, I don't know where the slides are. Yep. Yeah, it should be in there. Um, so yeah, so this one here, so if you click, uh, just one forward, you can see that if we're giving a preload dose, um, we actually get all of the T1 shortening out of the way. Um, and then it causes the signal, uh, the baseline to equilibrate. And so on your next dose, which, um, if you click next, um, uh, it actually, yeah, and click one more ahead. Um, then on your second dose, that causes a more accurate uh, measurement of, uh, of, of RCBV. Right. Um, now, what we're trying to do, what we've been working on is that's usually all the stuff that we validated with has been with what's called a moderate flip angle. So flip angle actually ends up being pretty important. Mm -hmm. um, and we're using a, a 60 degree flip angle TR of, of 1.5 seconds and a TE uh, between 20 to 30. Um, we're currently working on a pulse sequence where we don't need a preload dose where oh. we can actually uh, mitigate these T1 leakage effects using a lower flip angle. And so we're um, testing out a flip angle of 30 uh, degrees, uh, same uh, TR and TE, mm -hmm. but uh, that's looking to be fairly promising. Um, right. And so we're basically going, uh, acquiring a lot of validation data and uh, we're in the process of looking at that. Oh, that's amazing. Yep. Nice. So um, I don't know what other slides I, I can't remember what other slides I have, but okay, we have plenty of questions. Okay, cool. <laughs> uh, so another one of the questions I know um, that we we do get a lot, um, especially when it comes to perfusion, is pretty much 
IV, like your timing, right? Right. Like, because you have a delay. And I think we kind of touched on that a little bit on why you need to have a, a delay because you want to see the contrast, like how the tissue acts before the contrast gets there. Exactly. So we're looking at that peak. Um, how important is it for it to be injected fast? How, does that play a big role in the timing? I it guess does. I it does. That's a great question, uh, Reggie. So, um, speaking to your your uh, first question, we you definitely need uh, a minimum number of baseline points. So, they they say uh, I work a lot with Kathleen Schmeinda up at Medical College of Wisconsin, and she's she's fantastic. But she uh, basically her data has shown, and, and Jerry Boxerman's data has shown that um, you need a minimum of thirty points. Uh, to basically provide a good average, uh, good stability of that baseline. Right. And then we actually use that baseline then to um, uh, calculate the percent uh, change or percent drop in signal intensity. So when you say points, you're like measurements, right? The, like measurements. 30 measurements, I see what you're saying. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So if we're running with the TR of like uh, 1.5, um, uh, time, uh, like, uh, one time point every 1.5 seconds. Um, then, you know, basically you multiply that out. I think that's right. like 45 seconds. Um, right. but your delay, um, doesn't have to be 45 seconds because you have to actually account for, um, you know, oh. a rapid intravenous bolus, uh, contrast injection <laughs> in the antecubital, ideally a 18 gauge or 20 gauge, if you can get away with it. Right. Um, and so that usually takes about 20 seconds. Right. So I think we have our protocol set up to maybe a, a, a delay of maybe 20 seconds. Yes. Um, and then that allows day. for enough, uh, you know. Um, time for it to get time. There. Exactly. Oh, exactly. And in, in the bolus, uh, speaking to your second question, the bolus, um, the injection is huge, like in terms of importance. Right. Um, because we, we need to have that bolus uh, tight. Um, as possible. Mm -hmm. um, and so really between three to five seconds with the power injector oh, um, right. is, is ideal. And then you chase it with like a 20 uh, cc uh, normal saline injection. It, it's funny because when I um, started this project uh, back in fellowship, um, we didn't actually have a power injector. Um, oh, and and <laughs> And we were um, to when we first started, we were actually testing out different preload doses. So who could, who could actually push the fastest? No, it, <laughs> it was it was all me. Um, and uh, and and we were actually going. Uh, we're doing a double dose now, but at that point, we're actually testing out triple doses as well. Oh wow, yeah. And we would split the doses into um, 0.5 aliquot. So it would be a half dose, half dose, half dose. So I was doing six injections. Uh, so I had wow. six syringes oh uh, of contrast, six syringes of normal saline, <laughs> um, anacubital 18 gauge, um, literally in there in the magnet. It's got to be a world record. Oh right? my god, <laughs> I, my, my biceps were getting strong uh, <laughs> on that project. Um, but yeah, I'm glad to see that we've uh, it advanced uh, quite a bit with you know, power injector technology, but well, yeah. When it comes to the contrast, does the type of contrast make a big role? Cause you want to get a good enhancement, right? So is that the reason maybe why we went from three to maybe two? Has the contrast gotten better over the years too, or? No, you know, it, it's, it's interesting because back then we're using, um, you know, certain type of contrast. I'm not, I don't know if I'm allowed to right. say it, but, uh, <laughs> right. but you know, um, you know, some of the contrast agents uh, in terms of their safety profiles oh. have changed. And so that has guided, um, uh, use of, of those contrast agents. And then right. there are other contrast agents, which, um, 
are now uh, they have a greater re- relaxivity on T1 and in theory on on T2 T2 star and so um, I, I would say that um, the that uh, perfusion itself hasn't necessarily um, motivated those changes. It's been right. more just okay from a safety profile and also from um, uh, you know, sort of a clinical efficiency standpoint. Oh, and so we've had to kind of... Scanners getting better too. Right? Yeah, scanners getting better too. Right. And we've just had to make sure that as we're changing these contrast agents on a clinical basis, that the perfusion isn't necessarily changing. And we haven't seen major differences in it, uh, which is, you know, you know, fortunate. That's right, um, for sure. Yeah. But, <laughs> that's uh, why we got wood on the table. Well, that's <laughs> why we got wood. Yeah, I'm sure we'll be knocking, knocking a lot on this. Right. Um, Oh, that's awesome. Now, I know you kind of spoke to uh, scanner-wise. Now, 1.5 versus 3.2, does that make a big, you know, a f- does that make a big difference when we're looking at, I know it kind of makes common sense because we're looking at susceptibility effect, but can you speak on that a little bit, like 1.5 versus 3.2? Do you prefer 3.2, would you say? Yeah, for right. sure. And, you know, in general, I think, um, you know, 3.2 just pro- provides a ton more resolution, right. um, stronger gradients, uh um, in terms of perfusion or DSC perfusion, it provides a lot more uh, contrast noise. Um, right. So you get a greater susceptibility change. Right. Um, you can uh, acquire like more uh, slices per volume. Oh, so yeah. I, I think there's like a, just a ton point. of benefits. And, right. and so we're recommending basically uh, kind of standard recommendations, uh, consensus recommendations for DSC perfusion is 3T. Um, obviously, you know, some patients aren't able to, um, right. and so there are recommendations for 1.5 T as well, but, uh, that's a good question. You know, we always like to ask our guests the same question. Like what, what have you found to be the most fulfilling or satisfying moment of your career so far? Um, Ooh, you know, it's, yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's hard to, uh, to pin down one. I would say that there, there have been some, uh, you know, pivotal moments, um, you know, along the way, I would say just in right. general, I think getting to work with, you know, a ton of great people um, and uh, being able to not only work on the clinical side, but on the research and education side, I think has been uh, incredibly rewarding. Um, And just in general, it's fantastic to be able to work with, uh, you know, folks like yourselves. Right. um, Likewise. Right, for sure. Right. I know when you're always when we're hanging out, especially on the weekends, because we tend to have pretty passionate people on our podcast and you can just always tell like you can just feel the passion. Like I can tell you love what you do. Absolutely. Yeah, really it's, it's crazy, man. Our my wife is also a radiologist. Oh, and, nice. uh, Competition. huh? Uh, well, no. So here's the thing. Like whenever I come home and I'm like excited about like talking about like some sort of uh, results from yeah. some study or something at work, she's like uh, I don't want to hear it. <laughs> so it's great to be able to, you know, spend a Saturday right. afternoon with you guys, kind of um, captive audience right. uh, talking about this stuff. Yeah. So it's great. We well, we'd like to have you back for sure. Yeah, um, it's great. Reggie, you want to send send it off, I guess? Yeah. Close it out? Um, yeah, I mean, this is uh, Zone 3 Podcast. We're out. Zone 3 Podcast, thanks for joining us. <laughs> subscribe, do all those things subscribe. YouTubers ask you to do. We yes. appreciate Dr. Who for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Right Who on. again. Thank you. And uh, thank you, Dave, behind the camera for your help. And thank you to all of you guys. We'll see you next time. The information and comments provided in the Zone 3 Podcast and website are not intended to be technical or medical recommendations or advice for individuals or patients. 
The information and comments provided under the auspices of Zone 3 Podcasts and their guests are of a general nature and should not be considered specific to any individual or patient. Whether or not a specific patient is referenced by the physician, technologist, individual, group, or other entity seeking information. Zone 3 Podcast may provide links or references to websites. Such links are provided as a convenience to our listeners seeking more information on topics. These websites are not affiliated with Zone 3 Podcast, nor do they endorse or manage content discussions unless otherwise stated during recording.